So I'll be reading from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, bolt out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me with, from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Again, you, against you, you only. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you, you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely, for, surely you desired truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the, in the inmost place. Cleanse me with my, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and bolt out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from the blood guilt of O God. The God who saves me, the God and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are broken, a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be a righteous sacrifice. Hold burnt offering to delight you. The bulls will be offered in your altar. Let me add my welcome to uh, Giles. My name's Rod, and we're going to be looking at this psalm. Um, We've been uh, going through this short series of three weeks. Last week, we looked at Psalm 40, Trust. Uh, Tonight, Repentance. Uh, Next week, Thanksgiving. Different responses to God through these three psalms. There's a bit of an outline, as usual, on the back of the bulletin. That may be helpful as we um, dig into this psalm together. Um, But let me pray for us first. Father, we do thank you. Uh, for the freedom to gather together like this. Thank you that we can encourage and spur one another on. We thank you too that you've granted us your word that is living and active. And we pray that uh, we will hear you speak clearly tonight as you convict us and shape us as your spirit applies your word to our hearts and minds. 
Help us to be responsive to that, Lord, that we may uh, respond in a way uh, that pleases you. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the Queen's birthday long weekend was one of my favourite weekends growing up. I grew up on five acres on the George's River and, you know, Queen's birthday long weekend, that was the weekend when you had bonfires and lots of fireworks. Now, living on five acres with about three acres of that being bushland, we had no problem making a big bonfire. We'd work on this for months, right? So this would be a huge thing. When we lit it, we were in danger of burning down our whole five acres and the suburb around us. And that was standard fare. And we had, of course, in those days, lots of fireworks before they were banned. Uh, We had those eight-ball shooters. By that, could do a lot of damage. Um, Crazy jacks. And those little bungers, which to me, when I was 10 or 11, these looked like little sticks of dynamite. And boy, did they make a good noise if they went off next to your ear. Now, um, we used to have running battles. We'd experiment with some of these fireworks. I'm sure you've worked out, if you have Crazy Jacks, you know, they come in a pack of 12, but you can unwind all them and have individual ones. If you light them and face it the right way so you're not burning your eyeball, you can run around with the thing lit and place it on somebody's clothes, and that's a great game. Um, Burn holes in them, Um, especially if they've got a hoodie on. You know, they're in trouble then. Um, One year, um, we had a couple of friends that came over, uh, of my younger brother and myself, and after a while of doing these running battles, uh, my friends decided that it'd be a really good idea if they tried to blow up one of the letterboxes of our neighbours. And um, so they were heading down the driveway to neighbours across the street that they'd heard about, and they had this large wooden letterbox. And about halfway down there, I'm having a lot of misgivings about this plan, and I said to them, look, I, you know, I'm not going to be putting any fireworks in there. I don't think this is a good idea. Um, but none of that did anything to deter my friends at that point. They were just determined to follow through. Well, the fireworks were lit and put in place. There was lots of noise. There was a good amount of smoke coming out of it. And what was more was there was somebody coming out of the house uh, to which it belonged. That was the guy that owned it. And he was running up his driveway, uh, which thankfully was lengthy on five acres. And we, we had time to run down the street in the opposite direction as quickly as we could. Uh, my friends had something going on in a bonfire at their place. We snuck into their place uh, so that we could avoid a well-deserved talking to from this guy who uh, respected somebody else's property and walked back at that point. Um, you know, it was one of those situations where I thought, phew, you know, we've got out of that one. Until the next day uh, when my mother uh, found out about all of this. And so in the next day or two, I was taken across the road with her to apologize to our neighbor and then to make some kind of effort of cleaning out his letterbox. I don't know whether I made any impact on that. It hadn't destroyed it, thankfully. But I must tell you, um, there was a lot of embarrassment of going across at that age. Uh, I just wanted to get out of his lounge room as soon as I could. I was remorseful. I was sorry that I was caught and that my other friends had got me into such trouble. But I wasn't repentant. Um, One, I didn't feel personally responsible. But two, I didn't want to take any ownership for it. I offered a weak excuse about how it was my friends that had done it. Uh, which was true, and then he said, well, why were you running down the street if you were so innocent? Uh, To which I didn't have a good answer. And um, all of that raised for me, um, reflecting on the years that followed, what is true repentance? What would true repentance involve in such a situation? And I think that's the question that David raises for us in Psalm 51. What does true repentance, genuine repentance, look like? Well, that brings me to the first point on your outline. So point one, the first thing that it looks like is it's a repentant cry for forgiveness. 
genuine cry for forgiveness. Notice how the psalm begins again in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So this is in response uh, to David's adultery with Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband Uriah, which he arranged, which followed that. All of that's told in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And I think this psalm shows, uh, before we even get into the details, the power of God's word to change a person. God's word was brought to David by the prophet Nathan. And initially, David was sort of making all excuses, was very cynical and unrepentant about what he'd done. Uh, but Nathan brings God's word to him. And David's a changed man in response. And we get his response here in this psalm. And we see here, notice, David is asking the Lord for forgiveness. In fact, in verse 4, notice, he gets down to the root of the sin problem for all humanity, which is basically that we reject God's standard and we ultimately sin against him. And so he's perfectly justified when he judges us and his verdict of guilty is right. See, verse 4 I think also shocks us initially because as we read it, we feel like stating, well, I think Uriah and Bathsheba would beg to differ when he says that, well, only God was sinned against. However, God's word through David here is not denying that when we sin against other people in our failure to love them, that that's a real sin that has consequences and affects others. What David's highlighting here in verse 4 is that the greater offense is actually against God. See, it's God's law that we reject. It's God who we ultimately fail to love with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, even in our actions towards other people. And in addition, did you notice that David acknowledges in verse 5 that we're sinful from birth? Here's more of getting to the heart of the matter. Sinful even in our mother's womb, he says. Now, I think we can only understand verse 5 fully in the light of the New Testament. Now, in Romans 5, uh, for example, we learn that we inherit uh, the sin of Adam, the first human being, following the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So humanity is corrupted at that point. Yes, we were made in God's image, but that image has been marred or shattered because of their sin, their rejection of God's command to them. And every human that's born following them inherits Adam's fallen nature. And that's why Paul can write in verse 12 of Romans 5, as it comes up on the screen there, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. See, we all sure fall short of God's glory, as Romans 3.23 tells us. We know that we don't meet God's standard. And so our problem at that point is that we have this guilt before God and we're not able to remove it. Uh, we so like to be able to erase our own sins and to remove the accompanying guilt that comes with it. You know, like David, as he expresses in these first four verses, we want our transgressions, you know, blotted out. We want our sin washed away. We want to be cleansed. 
We do want to feel like we're whiter than snow again. But we're helpless to fix the problem. See, as David writes in verse 3, notice, he knows his own transgressions. His sin is always before him. It's like that record sitting in front of us all the time. We know if we're honest. Our conscience convicts us. You know, we can't escape our thoughts or our words or our actions. And so all we can do as a result in this powerless point in our plight is to simply plead with God. We have to throw ourselves again on God's mercy. And that's what David does in verse 1, did you notice? We have to ask the one who we've ultimately sinned against, the one who is the just judge, the only one who can blot out our sins. And so we come before him. And what's the basis of such a plea? How can we go before God and say, be merciful to me? We can't appeal to anything in our own character. We can't say, well, you know, I'm basically a good person, God. So, you know, you should overlook or deal with this one. Or No, we've got nothing to point to in ourselves. All we can appeal to is God's character. And that's what David does, doesn't he? He says, because of your unfailing love, because of your compassion, because of who God is, his character, he'll be willing to show mercy to people, people who are undeserving of receiving that mercy. Now, looking back from this point in history, uh, we know that God ultimately demonstrated his unfailing love, his compassion in the sending of his son Jesus to die in our place. That's how God the Father can forgive us. It's his substitutionary death and resurrection which allows the Father to forgive us of our sin because Jesus bears our punishment and he pays our debt. And the result is that we can be right before the Father. He can justly cleanse us so that we are truly clean. God really can wash us whiter than snow. That's the wonderful thing about God. There are no half measures. It's fully achieved and accomplished in Christ. And this is our one hope. It's all we've got to stand upon because of our sin. But we've got to truly repent for this to take place. Repentance. You know, it's a word that means change of mind, metanoia in the original Greek. A complete turning away from our previous actions. The language of turning away from sin is an admittance that you were wrong. that you were rebelling against God. It's about doing a 180-degree turn. A friend of mine a few years ago was telling me a story about him traveling uh, with another mate. Uh, His mate was driving, and they were heading across the harbor bridge, and they got about halfway across, and they realized they'd left some stuff at the place they'd been to, and they really needed to go back. Now, I'm sure you've been in that situation. I certainly have at times. I can think about it more in the harbor tunnel when I used to live at Chatswood. And you just know I'm going to have to drive 15 minutes in the wrong direction before I can get out of this and get back to where I need to now go. But the driver decided, no, that's not a problem at all. We can just do a U-turn here in the middle of the Harbour Bridge. It's peak hour, but why not? And he managed to pull that off. No one died somehow. And he went back in the other direction. Now, that's a picture of repentance, a 180-degree turn going back in a new direction that you've set for your life. That's a picture of a complete about-face. So let me ask you then, you know, when you get to that point where you have sinned or you've failed before God, 
Do you find yourself running to God or wanting to make excuses? Do you find yourself truly repentant or not really? You know, often we want to find fault with someone or something else. You know, how people will say, well, look, you know, it's the environment that I was brought up in or it's my family and their influence or, you know, my work colleagues. Well, they always talk like that or they always act that way. It's, I know it's irresponsible, but, you know, and so we explain it away. Or sometimes people will go further and they'll say, well, God, really, you're to blame because, well, you made me, you made me like this. I can't help being who I am. So it's how bad of you to judge me for my failings. It's your fault. It's not mine. Well, I think when we hear those kind of words, we start to feel the weight of offense against God. How angry he must feel about all this blame shifting. See, it's a game that doesn't work with God. We know it. At least we do if we're a believer that we can't uh, fool God. We stand alone before him in judgment. The cold light of day will shine on our actions alone and no one will be held responsible for them ultimately but ourselves. But this is the wonderful picture. I mean, David has failed miserably. But there's this wonderful hope of forgiveness, this new life that's held out if Genuine repentance occurs. And so firstly, true repentance involves acknowledging our sin. No ifs, buts or maybes. Acknowledging our sin before God and then crying out to him in forgiveness, simply pleading for his mercy. That's all we're called to do. That's all we can do. And that brings me to a second point. Point two on your outline. A prayer for renewal. So notice again where David goes on from verse 10 in this psalm. Verses 10 to 12. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I think the confession of sin that we've seen in the first section um, could lead to despair. It could get a person down and lead them to just be moping about. But notice David moves on here to this prayer for renewal in his life. He now looks forward. With this phrase, create in me a pure heart, David's asking for nothing less than a miracle. Who can create anything? in the physical realm, other than God. Only God can create a new heart within a person, surely. This is not an unbeliever's request for salvation here. This is a believer's prayer for renewed holiness, for change in their life. We need the change at the very core of our being. Notice how he represents that by using these terms heart and spirit in verse 10. And what's he looking for? Well, there's two key words there, isn't there? Renew and restore. They represent the prayer of a repentant person who not only seeks to have the slate clean from the past, but now wants to live a new way in the future. He doesn't want to keep going back to those things. He looks ahead. He wants real, genuine, ongoing change. And for that to happen, God's spirit has to be at work in us. We need his work, his continuing, transforming presence. And that's why David prays here. He pleads with God, literally, to 
not withdraw his presence from him. He fears that the Father may remove the Holy Spirit from him. And the reason he fears that is because of the experience of his predecessor, King Saul. Remember, King Saul is the first king of Israel. He stopped obeying God. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now, this is one part of David's prayer that we're not to copy. We are not to copy. Because with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we cannot lose the Holy Spirit or lose our salvation. The Spirit in the Old Covenant was just given to certain leaders, kings and prophets and priests. But in Acts 2, it's given to all those who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus. Instead of being something that can be lost, it's actually a down payment that guarantees our future, that ensures our inheritance. So notice Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 13 and 14. The Apostle Paul can say this. When you believed, that is the moment you became a Christian, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. There's a wonderful truth in that. And this is what we need to do as we come to such psalms and then trace through into the New Testament and reflect on how they apply to us as somebody under the new covenant. Notice also in um, David's prayer of renewal here, his desire is to again find joy in his salvation. I think this is a really key point in this psalm. He wants to find again joy in his salvation, also a willing spirit to sustain him. Verse 12. Now, why does he ask this? Well, I think it's self-evident as soon as we think about our own lives. You know, have you ever noticed that um, if you do sin or fail in some big way, then you can often feel down and unworthy before God because of your sin. And the result can be that you don't want to read the Bible, you don't want to pray, you don't feel like meeting with God's people, maybe you decide you'll skip Bible study that week, you somehow feel like you're unworthy and not good enough to do these things. All the joy, at least, has been drained out of your faith. But God wants to restore that. That's not where God wants you to stay if that happens. Only the devil wants you to be sidelined so that you're not engaged with his people, so that you're not continuing to grow and pursue your faith. Be aware that that phenomenon often happens to Christians. David's praying that God will restore the joy of his salvation. But notice um, David's also asking for a willing spirit to sustain him. And I think this is an earnest plea as well here. You know, there's this ongoing sustaining is God's antidote actually to further temptations which are going to come I mean was David never going to face a temptation after this big moment no we'll be there again the next day and it is for us again and again and again so what will be the antidote the next time you face that situation again well we need this positive delight in doing God's will we want to love more than anything to live for God to do things his way to please him so that I'm not attracted to the things of the world or the things that take me away from his way, that I actually find God's way much more exciting and enjoyable. And I think David had lost some of that. Uh, it seems with his wealth and his success, he'd become very dependent on David. He could just do things in his own strength. Hey, I'm King David. And it led him down a really bad path. 
he realizes, and he's really praying here, that he wants to do things God's way and he needs God's help to do that. And the outflow of that will actually be twofold. If that were to happen in your life and you prayed that way, then you'll want to encourage others to be repentant before God. You know, David goes straight on after this in verse 13 and says, I will teach others who are transgressing your ways. And you think, whoa, hang on, David, haven't you just failed? And you're going to go and tell other people? This sounds really hypocritical of you. It's not speaking in a judgmental way at all. What David has seen is the joy of being forgiven by God. It's so wonderful to be restored again and to head forward with God's help. And so I want to let others know about that. I don't want them to get stuck in this place where they're unrepentant and not bringing things before God. Teach other transgressors of your great grace. And the second thing that it will lead to is in verses 14 and 15. It'll issue in praise. You know, if you come to that point of realizing God's forgiveness again in your life, of seeking his help to move forward, then we'll just be overwhelmed with God's mercy to us yet again. And we'll just be so thankful about that. We'll want to praise God for his holiness, for his mercy and grace to sinners like ourselves. We should naturally want to sing about that. It should just sort of pour out of us. It's spontaneous. I don't know, have you ever been to a sporting match for a sport you love and, you know, seen your team or whatever, and, and they've won even, and you've had no interest in clapping or shouting or expressing any appreciation for what you've seen on the field? I can't imagine it. Um, have you ever been to a concert? Maybe you prefer music. Maybe it's an orchestra or it's a, a musical production or pop or rock concert. You know, and you fail to cheer or applaud the singers or the musicians at the completion of the concert. I mean, if you did, you're probably at the wrong concert. Um, you know, praise is a natural and necessary response to fully enjoy the object that is praised. You know, if I'm watching the State of Origin in the rugby league, I can't help praising the New South Wales Blues if they score a try. Let's face it, it rarely happens these days. So I'm just so excited. Or if we stop Queensland from scoring their 10th, that is so good. We've only won one in the last 10 years, if you're not aware. And if I'm watching the tennis, you know, I love watching tennis too. It's Wimbledon or the Australian Open. There's an Aussie that's actually winning. And that, that's rare. Um, but uh, that's wonderful. They win a set. They let alone win a match. You know, I'm praise it just bursts forth. You appreciate what you've seen and heard. How much more should that be true of believers in terms of their thankfulness before God? I think it's a weird thing about Australian culture, but... Australians get far more excited about sport, even Christians, than they appear to at times about the God who has saved them and who forgives them day by day by day. You know, our thankfulness to God's mercy towards should just flow out of us constantly. We're just amazed at his grace, that he would keep showing that to us. We don't deserve it, but he gives it anyway. He's compassionate. He's gracious. And that brings me to a final point, point three on your outline. So true versus false repentance. If those first two steps are true, we need to look back and acknowledge and confess. We need to look forward and pray for renewal and change and a return of our joy in our faith. Then are there missteps that we can take or right steps that we can take that help us in that process? Here's the application, true versus false repentance. So notice again how David sort of concludes as he goes from verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. 
You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Now, in verse 16 here, David's not uh, saying that God has rejected his own sacrificial system and the offerings that he appointed that people should make. Unless, still, uh, that somehow there's another way of paying for sins under the old covenant anyway. I think this is very clear when you get to the end of the psalm in verse 19 where David writes of God delighting in the sacrifices of the righteous. It's not like uh, they're completely inappropriate in David's day. What he's emphasizing in verse 16 is that the best of gifts or sacrifices bring no pleasure to God, bring no acceptance before God if they're done with an unrepentant heart. If the person's just going through the motions, yeah, look, I've done the wrong thing, but we should turn up the temple, throw down the lamb. That's what God wants. He'll be happy with that. We've ticked that box, right? Well, God's not pleased, obviously, with that. If they thought that that could work, then they're under a grave misunderstanding. But of course, with the arrival of Jesus in the new covenant, established through his death and resurrection, that whole old sacrificial, old covenant sacrificial system has been made obsolete. And that's because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. He lays down himself. He is the sacrifice and the high priest. All that had been before was just a signpost pointing forward to Christ and the completion of all of that in Jesus, whose payment was once for all. And so God, of course, doesn't call believers today to offer up lambs or other animals as a sacrifice and the price has been paid it's all done and squared away in christ but but he still calls us to make a sacrifice today he calls us to offer up ourselves to offer up our whole lives you see the apostle paul can write this way in romans 12 verse 1 get this therefore i urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See, worship is 24-7. And the heart of worship is a holy life, a life in response to God and his word to us. However, as one of our former pastors, Sam, was fond of saying, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep getting down off the altar. See, if our life is to be a living sacrifice that we offer up to God moment by moment, day by day, then when we sin and turn away from God's word, then that's what we've done. We've failed to worship God in that moment. We've chosen to disobey his word rather than live in a way that pleases God. But let me put it to you tonight that falling into sin is not our biggest problem. It's how we respond to that failure. You see, this side of heaven, we're going to constantly fall short of God's perfect standard, his glory. We're going to continue to sin. Hopefully we're growing if we've trusted in Jesus and we'll continue to put off sin in our life. We'll become more like his son, but we're going to continue to struggle day by day. I don't know about you, but I fail daily. I find it hard to go an hour without failing in some way at least in my thinking 
And so the question is, when that moment comes, how do I respond? Am I going to fall into the trap of trying to earn God's forgiveness at that moment? See, we have our own modern day, new covenant way of just being a tokenistic, going through the motions person. We'll say things, well, look, I'm just going to try harder this week. You know, I'm going to do some good work, so I'm going to go and help that person that's been asking me to help out. I mean, I'm going to read my Bible every day this week. I'm going to to pray more. And, you know, if I do these things, I'm sure that'll put me back in the good books with God. And as soon as we say or think that way, we've thrown the gospel of grace over our shoulder and we've gone back to gospel of works. We're thinking somehow we'll get back in God's favor because of something we do. And it's nonsense and we know it. The problem is the default setting of the sinful human heart is just that, a works-based gospel. I can do it. I can earn my way. Give me a list of 10 things to do. Every religion in the world does it just like that. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with the loving Heavenly Father. And what God wants from us at that moment of failure is verse 17. He wants a contrite heart. He wants a broken heart. It's the only thing that God won't despise at that moment. Offering up some kind of good works then? It's just a filthy rag before God. Won't pass the test at all. See, God won't despise us. He can heal us if we'll admit our brokenness, our need of his help. We can't do it. It's hard because it's humbling. We've got nothing to offer. We're called, as we were in verse 1, to simply throw ourselves on God's mercy again, to say, I have nothing, I'm a sinner, God, please forgive me. What will that look like? What's God looking for? How might we put that into words at that moment? Well, the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle John rather, urges us to confess our sins and receive forgiveness in 1 John 1 verses 9 and 10. Have a look at these well-known verses with me for a moment. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But notice the sting in the tail, verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So we need to continue to submit our lives to God, to keep acknowledging our need of his cleansing work through Christ. And we do that through prayer, through saying to him, Lord, I need your work, your help. And his forgiveness is unconditional. It's complete. Now, does that mean uh, if the sin involved another person, as David's did, that all the consequences will suddenly evaporate as well? No, not at all. Did they evaporate in David's life? No, his family was actually a train wreck from this point on. Bathsheba was able to get her son to be the next king in Solomon. But what a mess it created in the family. His sons hated him. They tried to usurp him from the throne. It went from bad to worse. 
But we need to be assured that when we come before God and confess our sins, the slate is completely wiped clean with him. God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. He won't keep bringing them up. And so often we want to keep bringing up our own sins or other people want to bring them up for us. But God will never do that with you. You know, there's a story of a wealthy Englishman um, who had the best of everything. He liked everything to have perfection. He was, had the same attitude with these cars, which he was particularly fond of. And his pride and joy was a Rolls Royce. He had it for many years. It was super reliable. One day he was going down a country road in England, hit this massive pothole, and he broke the rear axle on his Rolls Royce. Wealthy as he was, he shipped it to the Rolls Royce plant. They fixed it within days, and it was back shipped to his front driveway. No bill, no explanation, nothing. So he rang them up and said, well, you know, I know it's out of warranty and, and there's no bill or anything. Um, what's happened? And they sent back a letter the next day. said, oh, we'll look into that. They said, we've thoroughly searched all of our database and we find no record of a Rolls-Royce rear axle ever breaking. You see, the excellence of the company did not permit them to allow for the thought of that ever being remembered. And the excellence of Christ does not permit our flaws, our sin, to be remembered to the Father. You see, the Apostle John says God is faithful. God is just to forgive us of our sins if we will confess them. I asked the question at the start, what does true repentance involve? I hope you've seen that there's three things, three points as usual. Firstly, we've got to acknowledge our sin. We have to admit that we've gone wrong. And so often that's the stumbling point right at the start for us. And having acknowledged, admitted our rebellion, we've got to cry out. We've got to plead to God for forgiveness. Throw ourselves on his mercy again. But then secondly, we not only want to look back and have the slate clean from the past but we want to live differently in the future we want to go forward having been genuinely repentant which will mean we won't want to keep going and back and doing that again and so we want god to renew us we want him to sustain us to really love his will to follow it wholeheartedly to restore in us if needed the joy of his salvation so that we don't mope around and are sidelined as the devil would want us but we live for him and we want to move forward in his strength, his help. And thirdly, we need to make sure as we do that two-step process that we don't fall into the huge pitfall of thinking we can earn our way, of somehow going through some religious motion before him. No, we truly have to be contrite and broken before God. That's all he will accept. He despises, despises anything less. And if we do that, if we come in brokenness, he promises, I will forgive you completely. See, with God, there's always space for grace. With God, there's always scope for hope. And that because of Christ and his work on our behalf. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that you might work in us now to reflect on where we stand with you on this point of repentance at this point tonight.
Lord, challenge us. Lord, encourage us. We ask it in Jesus' name. I just encourage you to spend another maybe 30 or 60 seconds just reflecting before the band comes up.